New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. This week, we have a fantastic podcast episode with brothers Mike Carden and Philip Carden, founders of Joyous, a New Zealand tech startup that's been growing at pace. This podcast is one which some of you may have actually caught the live stream for during lockdown. Now, it's taken a little while to get it into audio form uh, into the podcast, um, but I'm sure you'll find it was well worth the wait. So before we jump in, a big thank you to New Zealand Tech Podcast, awesome supporters, Vodafone New Zealand, Vocus, HP, Spark, Sumo Logic, Gorilla Technology and Umbrella Connect. We also thank each of them for the support of the broader New Zealand tech and innovation ecosystems as a whole. All right, well, let's jump straight in. Hey, folks, greetings and welcome along to the podcast today. Great to have you here. Now, we've got two fantastic uh, guests joining us for the live stream and for the audio podcast. Uh, I'd like to welcome along both of our guests, Philip Carden and Mike Carden. How are you doing there, Philip? Start with you. Doing very well, Paul. Sitting here at home, getting used to it. How are you coping? Uh, really well. So I've got um, I've got a couple of uh, younger kids, um, both going to school, so um, that they have um, been experiencing virtual schooling for the first uh, week last week and starting to get used to that. And... Um, yeah, no, it's 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 going going well. Has <laughs> its ups and downs. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Mike, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing I'm doing great. I've got I've got teenagers, so I just um I just let them fight amongst themselves. You don't have too many problems with them trying to steal all the all the uh, bandwidth at home. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like um, I I, I one of the kind of yeah you know, unsung you know stories of this whole crisis in New Zealand has just been how well the telco networks have stood up. You know, it's like, it's quite amazing to me, like shifting everyone to work from home and everyone to schooling from home and so on. And we, yeah, we haven't really had it. Yeah. You'd, you might expect it kind of almost to collapse around your ears, wouldn't you? But yeah, it's just without a beat generally. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, 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 it's going pretty well. There's, there are, you know, challenges as we, as we've moved from, you know, work offices where we're usually all, you know, well connected up with, with very robust connections and, uh, you know, move to maybe random parts of a house where Wi-Fi can be variable and so on. But we work through those things and um, hopefully we won't have too many um, technical challenges today. Well, let's jump in. Um, Philip, maybe we can start with you. Today we really want to talk about the um, the startup that you and, and Mike have found about Joyous, but I'm keen to hear a little bit to set the scene about your background and um, you know, looking through the things that you've done in the past, you've you've had a really uh, you know quite a varied career. You spent a decade at um, Alcatel Lucent, and yeah, you know, I was just fascinated about you know your different roles as um, vice president of strategy uh, and innovation. Then you were the chief technology officer and the chief marketing officer for Asia Pacific, which you know is is probably quite an unusual combo. And the Senior Vice President at Global Head of Consulting Services, and and that was just your time at Alcatel Lucent. Maybe you can just run us through a little bit about that that journey uh, that's got you through to co-founding Joyous. 
Yeah, so I think that thing of kind of like a combination of um, sort of sales and marketing and technology is is kind of there all the way through um, from the time that I, I spent six years in New York running a, a consulting practice there back in back in the nineties, um, focused on security and telecommunications. Um, and yeah, um, the the time in Paris and, and Shanghai um, with Alcatel Lucent. Um, Got really interesting towards the end because, um, like Alcatel Lucent's now part of Nokia, but um, back then there was about eighty thousand staff in the organisation, and half of those were billable. Um, so they spread across three divisions. I, I ran one of those, and um, and so you know, as a business group, we had like um, forty thousand professionals, um, serious professionals, in in one hundred and ten countries, and. Um, so that idea of kind of like not having any idea of like what people, you know, what is the employee experience um, and, and not having any levers to pull. So I sort of have the, the practical experience of that. Um, but that said, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of more known as, as the technology side of um, this founding partnership. Yeah, interesting. And what were the biggest takeaways of having you know a team? Effectively, you've got you know tens of thousands of people spread around the world. You had to pick a couple of learnings from that that have you know put you in good stead with what you're doing now. What would have been the you know some of those takeaways? Um, well, I mean, the thing the thing I think is interesting, right? Is that there's just no there's no feedback loop, right? And um, none of the sort of traditional sort of 1970s approaches to, to feedback of kind of like, you know, anonymous surveys and that kind of thing um, actually help at all because they're sort of very measurement focused and they never um, actually um, provide any sort of context to the data and they're, they're very slow, right? So that, that whole thing of like, how can you just like um, build a culture into an organization where um, feedback is a live thing that, that leads to action? You can kind of, you know, it's not about like, executives understanding what's going on and, and initiating big change programs. It's how do you sort of drive that feedback culture right out into the organization? And, um, you know, I mean, that's where we sort of got to with with Joyous as one of the, the core ideas is that, like, um, yeah, people are just not quite taking the right approach to a really important area, which is getting feedback from staff and, and doing something about it and making that kind of just like a, a natural part of how you do business every day. And so, you know, Joyce is all about kind of um, encouraging conversation. It's not just about measurement. It's about like um, every interaction being an opportunity for small incremental improvements because we encourage conversation around these important topics. Um, it's not about, you know, change having to be something that gets structured so somewhere sort of um, way up in some ivory tower or whatever. It's like uh, distributing the insights all the way through the organization and letting people sort of react straight away. Great. Yeah, well, I, th I think, yeah, your, your practical experiences there obviously um, yeah, very, very helpful in helping you design and build Joyous. Mike, tell us a little bit about your background. I think in New Zealand, you know, you've had a fair bit of coverage over the success with Sonar, uh, Sonar 6. Tell us a little bit about that journey that sort of brought you to this point. Yeah. Look, it's funny, isn't it? Like we, we started Sonar 6, which was a you know, human resources, um, you know, software as a service business um, in 2006, right, which is the, the very beginning of software as a service. Uh, in fact, yeah, I don't think we realized we were software as a service for a while. Um, I, I do, in fact, remember going to a you know, kind of a, a Sandhill Road VC meeting and, and somewhere during the pitch, 
um, yeah, one of the partners said, "Oh, so you're a SaaS business?" and and um, and I was like, um, "Yes." <laughs> Later, looking <laughs> it up on my phone in the car and discovering, in fact, we were a SaaS business. Um, yeah. You know, so, um, you know, that that business um, was doing performance reviews, and it was it was I guess one of those scenarios where. Yeah, it was a market opportunity, wasn't it? It was. Um, it was. We figured out there was a, a billion people in the world who kind of had an annual performance review, and most of them were dissatisfied. And we, we sort of said, hey, if we can put that online and charge people, you know, thirty dollars a year for that, then there's a thirty billion dollar total available market, and that's that's kind of where we started. And um, yeah, we we built that business from 2006. It was acquired in 2012 by um, Cornerstone on Demand, and um, and then yeah, I got the um, opportunity to spend two years, uh, you know, on the leadership group of, of Cornerstone, which was a NASDAQ listed SaaS company. So it kind of went from the you know, the you know, early stage New Zealand SaaS growth business to being a kind of, you know, a, a, I guess, a, a quarterly driven NASDAQ listed SaaS business and, and they had experience at both ends of that scale. Um, you know, and subsequent to that, like um, you know, after after that, I spent um, you know, some time working in different, um, you know, different businesses in New Zealand, different tech businesses. Primarily, I discovered that I'm kind of native to, to enterprise SaaS. Um, and um, and yeah, um, yeah, did some governance work and invested in a few businesses and got involved. And then, you know, sometime um, you know, a few years ago, said, "Okay, it's time to use the, the experience and some of the capital we got from um, from you know, the Sonar Six period to, to build something new." You know, and it's really a um, you know, an interesting period to, to build something new, right? Because in the in the um, you know, the, the early days of SaaS, you know, building a SaaS business was very much just about taking a an on-premise piece of software or some kind of on-premise process like performance reviews and putting it online, and that's you know the, the beginnings of zero is just putting accounting online, isn't it? You know, Salesforce putting CRM online. So yeah, that was that was that phase, and we're suddenly in this new phase where actually you know we're we're, we're delivering on things like applying machine learning and and um, and you know, micro transactions and integrations and all sorts of things which really change the way that people work work in um, in the corporation. And so it's an exciting time to re-enter and um you know and the uh, you know the, the piece of employee feedback, particularly in large organisations, and, and helping people um you know uh, actually have a a more meaningful work experience, and you know in fact improving the lives of working people was a, a kind of purpose that, that um you know, I was personally quite committed to, and um you know went, went about trying to find someone to found a business with, and uh, particularly find a tech co-founder, and lo and behold, um, after a while of searching, I. I you know, contacted Philip, who was you know in, in Paris at the time, and said, "Hey, why don't you um, why don't you think about doing a doing a startup and you know leave, leaving your cushy enterprise job?" So um, so yeah, that was kind of the genesis of it, and and yeah, you know, we capitalised it a couple of years ago, and really you know, really have been going for for a couple of years, running running very very hard. Oh, that's that's great. Well, let's dive in to to that. But before we do, I've heard in the past that you've sort of shared um, one or two sort of key bits of of learning um, from Sonar Six and and that and that period. You know, after Sonar Six was acquired and you were part of the bigger listed entity, and there were one or two things that you that you came away with in terms of you know realizations. Are you able to share the most valuable bits there? From a sales perspective, and you know, and I guess the the sorts of customers that you you ended up you know going after, and so on. Yeah, no, thanks for that. And that that um that 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 um your very long question actually um actually worked well because my Chrome froze for exactly that period of time of that question, Paul. So um, so that was that was um, that was quite awesome. So um look um I guess that uh yeah I've I've told the story before, but it's a, it's a very sort of pertinent one for my journey, which was that um. 
you know, um, after um, you know, Sonos Six focused on focused on the SMB market, and I, I think that the the reason we focused on small and medium business was was partly because we just had a um a maybe lack of confidence in ourselves. Yeah, you know, it was the first time we built a, a software business. We were kind of a group of a group of people who'd kind of met through through cycling. It wasn't like we you know, came from some established tech background, and um and we you know um. I thought, I guess, that maybe the SMB market would be a little bit more forgiving and easy for us to work in. Um, and so after six years of building that business, and, you know, in software businesses, you're very, SaaS businesses, you're very focused on building your ARR, so your annualized recurring revenue, the, the subscription money you get every year. Yeah, we had, a, we had um, uh, you know, I guess, a revelation. So we're, we're acquired by Cornerstone, and Cornerstone, um, you know, they weren't SMB native. They were much more focused on the enterprise. And um and literally you know a couple of weeks after we were acquired, they they won the Nestle business worldwide um, you know in, in, in um, performance management and um and that Nestle business by itself was worth as much as all of the ARR so all of the recurring revenue we built in, in Sonar Six over the preceding six years and so I was very much like wow it's um it's the enterprise is is um you know got this kind of advantage of of scale that that yeah you know, we hadn't been able to take. Take any um any notice you know any any um, advantage of ourselves and um and I remember thinking at the time well I wonder how you know Cornerstone got into enterprise sales you know how they started to chase the, the biggest companies in the world and so I sat down with the CEO you know asked him and th- at that point Cornerstone were twelve years old so it's like yeah what at the beginning you know, you know what you know, how do you make the step from from small businesses to bigger business he goes oh we just started targeting enterprise at the start and um you know you realise that you know in their first few years they got you know, one or two large enterprise customers, and that's who they went after, and they built deep relationships with them. They built that business, and um, you know, I think that's you know, that's, that's the same model. If you look at some of the great New Zealand successes, Anaplan's a good example. You know, a, a, a company where actually they went and targeted some of the biggest companies in the world right at the start, and really kind of built themselves with that. And that requires a certain level of confidence. And um, you know, I guess that you maybe have that confidence more if you've been through a cycle. And so, yeah, that's certainly what. What we've been doing in, in, in Joyous is targeting the world's largest companies. I think that that's fantastic and, and probably not an, a natural approach to take as a as a New Zealand startup to necessarily be able to join the dots up. But so I think you know, I appreciate you sharing that because sometimes I guess as Kiwis we look so much at our own market, we we may not really get our head around what is the most strategic um, approach and you know right now as a country we really need to be investing into our long-term future and and making those plays that are going to play out you know over the next five or five or ten years and deliver really really good results but they're going to take some time so yeah rather than just uh, I guess approaching what we know and what what we're familiar with which in New Zealand I mean we don't we don't we, I don't think we have a single business with anywhere near the scale of, of many of these, these companies like Nike Nestle, mm. certainly in terms of, you know, New Zealand headquartered businesses. So, yeah, that's that's a great story. Thank you. Now, um, who who wants to sort of share, and, I, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, you've both got uh, talking about doing a startup together, but how did you actually nail the idea for uh, for Joyous and, and decide to get rolling? How did How did that actually come about? I don't think that we started off with a, an exact idea of what we were going to do. We started off with um, the idea um, that we were going to do something, um, first of all, that 
we're going to build an iconic New Zealand tech business. That was one of the things. And, and the second thing, more importantly, was that we were going to be um, doing something that's like part of the solution rather than part of the problem, right? Because like, you know, based on sort of where both of us have got to, um, why would you do anything else, right? And if you look at, um, if you look at like, you know, what are the great unsolved problems of the world? Well, there's plenty of people working on many of them. Um, but, but one of them, you know, people spend an awful lot of time at work and you know around about half the world's population works and so like if you can make life at work better for people um you, you make a significant difference to to the world um and so like that kind of fit it with that aspiration and, and at, at the same time like it's a space where th there's nothing particularly interesting that's happened for a long time right so like you know I, I sort of referred to like this sort of 1970s approach to um to feedback um so you know obviously it's kind of the industry has modernized a little bit they've taken sort of like that 1970s philosophy and kind of put it online um and you know sometimes they do surveys a bit more often but that's kind of like the extent of the the evolution right and so it's just like none of that stuff is is lined up with where the world's at right we have half the world's working population is just completely used to the idea of associating their names with comments and, and all other facets of their life and as soon as you sort of like break that model and say you know feedback itself should be open you know you, you just open this really interesting space where suddenly like um, people leaders can take action as a result of that feedback straight away um, people feel like you know you know you know you, you, you in these large enterprises, people do um, these annual employment surveys or, or maybe even kind of more frequent anonymous surveys um, and nothing ever seems to happen as a result. It's like, it's almost like a joke. Um, it's, you know, if you were to go out there into enterprise land and say to people, nothing ever happens as a result of, of annual surveys, uh, everybody agrees with you. And that's just how, how much of an opportunity there is in the space to kind of like do stuff differently and so you know at the same time you've got like um you know senior executives chief executives that are wanting to build like a um, a transparent culture or an inclusive culture or more of a trust-based culture um and if you think about that stuff transparent culture and anonymous feedback it, it just doesn't compute at all it's like um it's like what, what's what's the world been thinking about in this space for the last 30 years so um, yeah, we just saw this really exciting opportunity to do some good in the world and, and in a space that's sort of pretty much wide open. That's great. Yeah, and it really is a case of, um, of you know, if you, if you want to impact the most important thing first, um, you know, you just want to give workers a voice, right? And working people need to have a voice that's heard and understood and responded to. Um, and that's, yeah, that's actually how you start fixing, fixing work. Now, how did you get actually off the ground and get started. Philip, I think you mentioned to me that you started doing the coding yourself. Tell, tell me about those those beginning days, um, you know, with, with, with getting a, um, an initial offering that, uh, that you could show off. Yeah, so Mike, Mike and I both write code um, and we both did write code together. And in fact, um, I think it's like, it's, it's just like a philosophy that we have, right? That um, as, as we grow the business, we get involved in every part of it so that we understand um, that part of the business. And, and, you know, clearly in this kind of business, one of the most important things is engineering. It makes sense to start there. Um, and 
you know, that also has the advantage that you can actually build something. So, you know, we, we, we took it through to um, a prototype that was um, implemented in a, in a New Zealand corporate. And, you know, that whole process of kind of building the software um, over about a 12-month period when we would still sort of say that we we're in kind of like um, project stealth mode, if you want, um, just, just a really, really sort of fascinating time in terms of with new ideas because you, you, you know you, you don't start off with understanding exactly which are the pieces that are going to like kind of revolutionize the approach um, in a particular market and so so that was really interesting and you know also gives you a good understanding of kind of like what you're trying to build in terms of an engineering team so when it came to the point where we got a lot of outside investor interest we were entirely ready to go out and sort of start building a, a world-class engineering team and attracting the kind of people that um that you need to do that partly because you know we'd spent quite a bit of time kind of understanding what it was that that we were looking to build right yeah i mean certainly pretty helpful having having a local customer that you're able to you know able to work with but also being in the position I'm picking where you could afford to, you know, self-fund for, for that initial year or so and, until you went looking for further parties to um, to invest. So how did you sort of transition from building that initial version or concept and, and starting to try that out into actually bringing investors on? Yeah, look, um, I, I guess that, that um, yeah, you know, that, that sort of period of iteration, you know, we were kind of working out what we're doing and we're trying to, um, you know, um, Understand the architecture and understand exactly what the product offering looks like, and get a you know get a bit of kind of you know enterprise customer feedback on that. Um, is, is really where you start to kind of hone your pitch. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that yeah, we made a deliberate decision to do a kind of angel or pre-seed round um, and involve um, you know some some institutional investors in that, right? And get um you know venture venture driven investment at that point. And um and that was. Yeah, that was quite deliberate. Yeah, it was a very deliberate step that we thought that what we will do is once we sort of commercialise this, we'll do it on the back of um, of, of um, sort of you know, pre-seed angel investment. Um, sorry, pre-seed venture investment. And the reason the reason for that was that sort of long term, we had a view that we will eventually, you know, although we could have self-funded that first round, ultimately you want to have, um, yeah, you want to have large investors on board who are capable of 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 you know meeting the investment requirements of the business if it's successful and it's growing the way you want. And so we sort of, it was like one of the deliberate steps, I think, Paul. And then, um, you know, the actual piece of that was like, okay, well, we now know that that's, that's kind of um, coming up. And, we, you know, we went and, um, you know, pitched to a number of investors that, that um, you know, we'd previously had some conversation with and some other interests developed. And we, you know, we quickly kind of closed a, um, a, a modest speed round or sort of pre-seed round, should I say, yeah, which is a really kind of almost pre-product, pre-customer round. Yeah, we have a customer running a prototype product. So we, we have that, but that customer is not a customer and they're not paying us any money. So, yeah, it was a, a kind of pre-revenue type round. Um, and that was, always, that was always part of the plan. Right? Um, the good news is, is that, you know, you can, you can get those rounds away in New Zealand these days and so, or New Zealand and Australia. And so, yeah, we, we were on board, you know, Airtree, um, Ventures in Australia and um, and um, you know, Tahua Fund in New Zealand were part of Ice House Ventures in New Zealand, so able to do that round in a in a very kind of um, contained geography. 
Yeah, that, that's certainly very helpful. I'm I'm sure it made a big difference that you know you came to the table with with a lot of experience and expertise. You know, you both bought. What sort of time frame did it take you to go through and get that funding? Because I know it can be incredibly distracting. It, but you know, becomes quite a you know key part of what you have to do often in a startup yeah. is, is raising funds. And you know, for a lot of folks, the funds don't come in when they need them or want them, and you know they're having to lay off and dump members of their team depending on you know where where they are in that journey and the disruption as as we've heard on some of the other podcasts can be pretty extreme i'm picking in your case you know probably a little bit uh, a little bit easier than than some of those scenarios because of the proof of past things and the experience that both of you had building building um yeah building an organization um like joyous is kind of a journey that starts a long time back in your career isn't it so yeah i guess that the um, experience that that you know philip had and in, in you know, his enterprise roles, and certainly the the you know, the work that that um, you know, I'd done with others in, in building building um, Sonar Six, and you know, building that through funding and through acquisition, um, you know, is really the stuff that lands you here. And likewise, even within you know, within our team, you know, our senior people, their time at, at, at Spark or at Vista or at other places has really kind of brought them to this position. And so, um, you, you know, I guess that this iteration was certainly um, a lot easier from a capital raising perspective than the the Sonar Six iteration. Partly because the um, the marketplace is different. There's you know, certainly much more um, you know, institutional capital or capital generally available in, in 2018 when we were doing that um, round than there was in 2006 when we were when we were funding Sonar Six. That, that said, pitching a business, you've got to do a good job of it. You know, we 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 yeah you know, we took a, a serious a serious tilt at it, and, and you know um, we we had um, an objective to to get um, you know, what we considered to be the most appropriate and best VC. On um, our register, which was Airtree, and so we targeted them, and we obviously targeted others, and, and you know, Airtree, um, you know, was the one we chose. And I think that whole process was was only a matter of weeks long. It certainly wasn't, yeah, you know, that much longer. But let's not ignore the fact there was a preceding kind of, you know, uh, I guess, twelve year period, you know, where where we we you know, had been been involved in lots of other SaaS businesses and talked to lots of other ventures and, and so on. And um, you know, the reality of it is is that. It certainly seems maybe easier for us to raise capital, but capital, um, you know, investment is is a risk return game, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, if you've got, I guess, um, founders with some track record, then you know you've got a lower risk, and that makes you more appealing. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's that simple. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Now, I'm I'm keen to hear. Obviously, in the current time we're in, where there's there's a lot of being you know, a distress and pressure on businesses. You know, staff are dealing with all sorts of challenges. Uh, you know, I think in your case, you've gone from you know working in a in an Auckland office to everyone being operating from you know from their home locations, and this sort of thing is going on everywhere, of course, around the world. What are your learnings in terms of actually how do you create that environment when you are spread out? You don't have control uh, over things in the, in the normal manner. How, how do you create the environment, the culture um, to really have everybody working well together and being happy? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of just the little things that make all the difference, I think. Um, so, like, we have... You know, we, we have a very um, unique culture. You know, it's a strong culture. You, you, you kind of expect that we focus on culture because we're kind of in the in the business of um, employee experience. But, um, you know, part of culture is that you have rituals, you have things that you do, right? And so, like, th- there's the obvious things like, you know, 
daily stand-ups and, you know, retrospectives and stuff like that. And, and, and they just sort of like naturally move online. Um, and then there's the things that don't as obviously move online. Like we used to have um, team lunches every couple of weeks. And so, you know, we, we sort of transitioned that to a Zoom meeting where people sort of have lunch on Zoom and, you know, they use the Zoom background to um, have a picture of like the, the food that they like to eat or would like to eat or or something like that, you know, just sort of um, be silly with it. But like where it got really interesting for us um, was the stuff um, around celebrations. So it just so happened that like we had prior to going into lockdown, we had a couple of people that were um, in their, in the, doing their second anniversaries. So, you know, we had, um, you know, we had balloons and a bit of a celebration in the office. We also had our first um, um, person go on um, maternity leave. So that was a, a, you know, a huge celebration in the office and the office was full of balloons. And so like we, we kind of go into lockdown with like this, um, this thing going on around celebrations. But like just shortly after lockdown, um, we had another three people with like anniversaries. And so, you know, it's like, so how, how do you make that special online? And so like for the first one, we developed this thing, like we discovered sometime last year that like, um, that none of us mind drawing um, we're all bad at it, but um, we, we, we'd kind of like gone through this sort of thing where we had drawn pictures of each other. Um, and so for that first celebration, um, we, we, we did the online, I think we did it on Zoom um, with the backgrounds as like the uh, the picture of the person drawn by each individual team member. Um, and then they had to kind of like guess who'd drawn who, which was sort of like a fun game. And, and then for the next one, we, um, we just ramped it up a notch and... Um, um, people had to make like a a sculpture of some description, some kind of 3D object um, out of stuff that they could find at home that represented that person. Um, and then for the third one, because like once you start it, you've got to keep going. Um, we did that thing, you know, they do with the museums where you take the famous paintings and you've got to try and make the um, make the same painting with stuff that you can you know, find around the home. So we, we did that with like photographs of this person. And I don't know, that's just like a an interesting idea of how you can kind of, uh, take stuff that kind of worked well in normal life um, and sort of translate it in some way so that you have the same kind of feeling um, when you're um, in this world. Well, what we're noticing most, and we notice this in our clients too, Paul, is that um, there are companies that have a, a strong culture to start with um, are able to, you know, to transition fairly, fairly naturally to, to letting that culture, um, you know, um, Express itself in a, a distributed environment like this. Um, now, it's it's sometimes a, a thing where um, you, know, you have to be quite explicit and work hard on it. But if you have a, a kind of you know tepid or, or, or weak company culture to start with, very very hard to build company culture in this environment. So it's really it's really a, a, you know from our perspective, we're saying okay, let's let's see how we. Yeah, we take the things which are good about our culture and make sure that they exist and continue to work in a in a work from home and distributed environment. Um, but yeah, we're, we're starting from the point of having a strong culture. Yeah, we, we certainly do see the challenge in some of our large clients. Um, yeah, and some of them are getting very, very active and working out how they how they maintain culture in a um, you know, in this kind of environment. And um, yeah, what, what I can say from my sort of early observations is that um, you know, in our client base, where people are very, very focused on it, and that's the lines of that why they're I guess joyous client clients. They're um, yeah, they're managing to maintain that culture, even though they've 
they've got a mix of essential workers, work from home, all those sorts of things. Whereas, um, yeah, I certainly see the experience in, in some large corporations where it's very, you know, you can sort of see even even a month in, the um, the culture is starting to drift because they just don't, you know, they, they maybe didn't have a very explicit culture to start with. One of the things that is interesting, though, with um, with the situation we're in, right, is that, like, nothing is what it was before. So um, people have got very much used to the idea of change. It's a really interesting, you know, if you're looking for kind of like a, a silver lining around culture, um, the fact that there is kind of like an expectation that stuff will just be different at the moment um, kind of introduces this opportunity to do stuff differently. Um, being much more sort of transparent or oriented towards trust building in the culture, um, you know, that, that's um, that's a, a big step for some sorts of organisations to take. But it, um, I've definitely had a few conversations recently where um, people have recognised that like that sort of like expectation of a change at the moment is, is like an opportunity to introduce change. It's, it's quite interesting, I think. Yeah, that's a great observation. And, you know, certainly I've, I've seen it with my team that we're in the process of, yeah, I guess you know, bringing through some key changes. So when we when we come out, that we're we're in the absolutely best position that we can be in. And I think there's there's really an opportunity to build you know a lot of unity. Um, you know, with with a team, everyone is focused. Uh, you know, I, I guess it, there's a little bit of that sort of wartime mentality of hey, we've got to get through this, we've got to win, and. Yeah, if that means some some change, some personal sacrifice that that people are willing to do it, um, mm. you know, for the greater good. Whereas they're not, you know, sometimes uh, you know life can be um, at a bit of a different pace, and and trying to sort of you know bring changes is you know can be can be quite an uphill uphill battle at time, right? People don't 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 usually like change, but. Yeah, right now, I think yeah, you you'll get people buying into it much easier than usual. A meme going around that says, "Yeah, you know, who is driving digital transformation in your business?" And it's like, is it the CTO? Is it the um, CEO? Or is it COVID nineteen? And there is, yeah, you know, there is this like, um, there is this, uh, I guess, appetite, um, like you know, you've both mentioned for for change in the enterprise at the moment. And you know, the, the, you know if you're thinking about change and you're thinking about what occurs. Yeah, we've actually got this huge driver right at the moment towards um, the technical innovation in organisations or technological shift in organisations. And you know, the idea of, of using um, you know, more tools to communicate with your teams and so on is very, very natural currently right, in this current environment. Now, I'm keen if you could just talk, uh, maybe Philip, a little bit to, to how, um, how Joyous works. For those that, have, that are using it, how do they use it? What, is that, what does that look like? How do, what are the touch points from a staff perspective? And then, you know, what do you do with that data as it, as it flows back? Who, who gets access to, um, to see it? Because you've talked about, you know, Joyous taking this, you know, fresh approach that's, that's you know, different to the traditional sort of, you know, 70s and, and 80s type, you know, anonymous feedback model. Um, but how, in, in, you know, in practical terms, does that actually work? Yeah. So, I mean, we create structured open conversations and the way that works in a, in a very concrete way um, is sort of, Joyce is a very flexible tool, so you can set it up in different ways. But the, the, the most common way to set it up is that uh, staff get a message once a week via email or um, via SMS that asks them a question on a particular topic. 
Um, and so, you know, those topics are flexible. We'll, we'll come to what those are shortly. Um, but the, the, the very first question will kind of like get them into the, the space of that particular topic. Um, and then straight away, we'll ask them to, to make a comment about that topic, right? And um, as soon as they do that, um, the, the experience of doing that, by the way, is just like using, um, you know, WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, something like that. So, you know, if you're a, um, a digital native, it feels modern, you can attach photographs if you want to. Um, if you miss the whole social media thing, it just feels like using SMS. And so it's, it's familiar to to everybody. Um, and, you know, people can make comments, they can do that on their mobile phones, they can do that on their desktop. Um, and that comment will appear straight away um, in your people leaders feed. So the, the person that might be your, um, your manager, for example, um, it appears in their feed and, and they can, they can see your comment straight away, they can see a, an image if you've attached one, um, and they can respond to it. Um, and the way that we set it up, Joyous is aware of the organizational structure, right? So, you know, when we integrate into the SHAR-IS system or Active Directory or people upload their organizational data, um, Joyous will automatically self-configure itself to, to understand um, how the organization structured. So you get lots of fine-grained control over um, who can see what. Um, but the, the most common way that people set up Joyous simply because it's easy to communicate to staff who can see what is that, um, you know, your manager can see the feedback and then their manager can see it and so on up the hierarchy. And, you know, obviously that varies a little bit for agile organizations and so forth. And we're really good at handling, um, you know, agile organizations and other modern organizational structures like matrix organizations and folks that look after projects and all that kind of thing. But whoever it is that can like see your feedback, that feedback will appear in the live feed for them. Uh, they can respond to it, and that response will come through on your, your phone straight away. So it becomes a conversation. And what's really interesting about that, right, is that, you know, first of all, because you have your name associated with stuff, your, your comments are much more constructive and, and often um, quite a lot deeper, um, more elaborate. Um, so there's a whole lot of value in the commentary itself right and so not only are we creating this ability for people to um, you know to surface issues that might need action and, and also to um, to share appreciation that kind of thing so kind of like the the instant incremental improvements and in, in the the employee experience um, you're also creating this richness of insights because um, you know we can use um, you know, machine learning to do theme extraction on the comments themselves. And, you know, lots of people sort of talk about kind of theme extraction and machine learning and that kind of thing in this space. But like the thing that makes it different um, is that we get like a much higher rate of comments. We get a lot more comments and they're deeper comments. And that's the stuff that actually makes it practical to, to extract the themes. So it's a sort of pretty exciting kind of um, loop that's great. That's great. Excellent. Well, um, I'm keen to get your feedback uh, from really from both of you around you know these current times we're in and how we should be thinking. You know, there's um, I guess dealing with the the here and now, the you know the current you know financial challenges that are, that a lot of businesses needing to address. 
whatever those look like. And of course, that you know that can be quite varied. Um, you know, for some businesses, they they maybe don't you know don't have a future at all. So you know, there needs to be that thinking of well, what next? What's going to be the next? Uh, business and and taking that approach uh, for others it's sort of you know looking at well how do we navigate this in an x period of months ahead whether that's two months or 24 months or how however long it takes to to get through this period where um, you know COVID-19 is is causing a, a level of disruption and then there's that I guess that sort of longer longer term thinking Mike, what's your view on, um, you know, on an approach to sort of, you know, thinking about these things and, um, you know, not just being tied up in the in the in the immediacy of the pressures, but um, but being able to be strategic during these times. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the first thing to acknowledge, Paul, is that, that COVID nineteen is is a lottery in, in a lot of regards, right? And um, and I, I obviously at, at a health outcomes level, it's it's a lottery, um, but. You know, at, a, at a business and the economic level, it's a lottery too, right? And so, you know, I mean, you know, in Joyous, we're, we're um, you know, fortunate and we, we work in the employee feedback space. Our, our clients typically are in infrastructure, telco, pharmaceuticals. It's, it's you know, we're not immune to the effects of, of, of the environment, obviously, but we're nowhere near as impacted as, say, someone who makes um, software for organising cruises or something, right? So there is, there is you know, and that's not based on, some kind of great planning on our part. That's just you know, kind of the way that the um, the dice you know have, have rolling at the moment. Um, so there is. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of just acknowledging empathetically. There's lots of different situations for different people. Um, and so the, the first thing I think that people get into in this mode is the um, is the existential piece, right? Which is, you know, can we survive long enough to get out the other side of this? And um, um, yeah, the challenge with that statement is is not so much can we survive. It's like, what when is the other side of this and what does the other side of this look like? And so, you know, I think that what we're, you know, um, you know my kind of um, you know, suggestion on this has always been that, like, you know, it's, it's, there's this one mode of kind of getting through this next period of, you know, where lots of countries are in lockdown and lots of clients aren't doing any, you know, anything and so on, but then actually land in a very unpredictable recessionary environment. Right? And, um, and in that recessionary environment, well, you know, you've got to, you've got to look at how your business can, can – um, not only survive in there, but you really do have to thrive, right? So if you take a, a take a mindset that says, "Hey, look, um, uh, at some point in the future, we're going to need to raise capital again." Right now, that point in the future might be immediate if you're very, very short of cash and suddenly you've had a drop in, in cash flow. But in, in in a more common scenario where that's you know, a, a number of months away, you might actually find that that um, you know, it's not about just getting through the next three or four months. You've actually got to get into a mode where, hey, if I don't want my capital raise to be hugely delusionary. I'm also going to have to have enough runway to start to show that the business can grow again, and that like yeah, we actually can survive in the next the next environment, whatever the, the future economy looks like. And so I think that there is um you know there is this thing where you go okay well yeah how do we plan that out? As soon as you get into that mindset, I think it's important to you know to think about that thrive piece of to think about how you do grow and 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 it's it's no different than any other business scenario in that it's competitive, right? That there is a what you're trying to achieve at the moment is you're trying to achieve a um, you know, um, uh, you know, you're trying to take advantage of the opportunities that are in the market. So at the, at the simplest level, if you're in a business like ours, it's quite hard to close deals currently just because large enterprises, it's not that they don't have a requirement for what we're doing, but they've been very distracted over the last little while with, with other things. They have, you know, they have all sorts of pressure on the top line probably if they're a, if they're a you know, universal type business. Um, and so that will slow the sales process. However, at the same time, you know, from a marketing perspective, suddenly the field has got wide open. You know, there's... Um, 
there's marketing costs are coming down. Uh, you know, um, you know, our target audience are people in senior roles and in um, human resources and employee experience roles too. Actually, have have more time. We're we're very very relevant to the conversation. You know? So our our time to shine is right now. So yeah, I mean, I look back to the GFC and you look at what happened there. That's when a lot of companies really built their category. You know, companies like Salesforce are a good example. They built themselves through through that GFC, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm of I don't want to be overly optimistic because that's the you know, incorrect stance. But the thing is, if you miss the opportunity at the moment, you're equally as disadvantaged um, in a way as if you um you know just face into the existential challenge. Philip, did you have any anything you wanted to wanted to add into that conversation? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that sort of characterization that. Um, I think when when we went into this, we kind of our sort of initial strategic analysis was um, that we were going to like face sales and efficiency and marketing efficiency, right? So marketing costs would go down, um, and sales efficiency would go down also because like sales cycles would get longer. I think we're starting to kind of feel like the second part of that is not necessarily true. There's there's other things that are maybe counterbalancing. It's potentially just for our kind of business, right? But I, I think that whole thing around kind of openness to change is an effect that I hadn't really anticipated, but that seems to be coming, you know, becoming quite real. We, I, I mean, I, we definitely see um, deal flow as a result of that that we wouldn't otherwise have seen. Now, it's too early to say whether that turns into to sales efficiency, but that is sort of an interesting observation. Yeah, thanks. And what sort of sales cycle do you do you have as a business? Because you are, your deals tend to be fairly big. I'm, you know, I'm presuming going after such large entities, and so that 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 tends to mean it's um it's quite a long cycle. I think that um you know, our cycles are um are um, varied as you expect, right? Um, and you know, look, our deal size is large. You know, it's like six or seven figure deals, right? So. Yeah, what we typically find is that things either go to an RFP or they go to a pilot. If they go to an RFP, you know, typically might, might take a, a few months to get to the RFP and then a few months afterwards. You know, a pilot typically takes a little bit longer. But, they're, they're, you know, they're not you – know, the, thing, the thing for us is that, that you know, given that we often replace existing kind of, you know, um, annual survey processes or something, there's typically some kind of cadence that they're already used to. So, you know, I, I mean – you know, in the enterprise, sales cycles can be brutal, but um, yeah, we, we're not seeing it at all. We're seeing some deals happen very, very quickly, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I imagine, you know, some businesses, you know, recognise the, you know, the advantage of getting on board with, with what Joyce is able to provide in terms of that, that immediacy of, um, of feedback and, uh, you know, even just, just checking in on, on people's health and well-being when they're not, uh, they're not in one place and how, you know, how, how else can you do that without generating a whole lot of new work if you've got a tool that, that makes that very easy and, and collates the feedback and, and creates those um, you know conversation loops. Then, but I mean, it, it, it seems pretty natural uh, thing for people to be uh, wanting to get get in place right now, which is it's great. Yeah, and, and important to remember too, right? Like, um, it's not a case of everybody working from home. You know, there's, there's still all the folks that are involved in essential services, um, and you know, essential services is not you know all just sort of like people working in, in, in hospitals and, and that kind of thing. It's um it's folks like, you know, um going into people's homes to, to fix their broadband connections. You know, it's a 
good example, right? Those people obviously, you know, in different parts of the world have some pretty real concerns about how their work life has changed. Um, and then you have the people that simply can't work, um, can't work, you know, at the moment doing the job that they usually do because there's just no way of doing it. Um, and so what we find with sort of like enterprise scale um, employers is that they have all three of those categories typically within the organization. Um, and so it, it becomes really interesting. Um, and, and what we're finding is that like the flexibility to um, sort of tailor the topics to individual organizations is actually much more important during this time than is maybe normally the case, right? So we do lots and lots of work on on the science side of Joyous, right? So structuring the, the question, you know, making sure that we're asking the right questions in areas like, you know, um, fairness and inclusion and well-being and engagement and um, cultural environment and all that sort of stuff. And quite often you can use um, a question set from one organization to the next. But in these times are kind of like um, big changes where like people's workforces are being affected in such different ways. You, you really do sort of need this ability to be really tailoring feedback and even response models. By, by that, I mean like who it is that's actually going to respond to a particular piece of feedback. Um, that sort of flexibility has become really important. Um, and so fortunately, it's something that we're kind of designed to do. We, we, we always set out to, um, you know, be the, be the feedback solution that would work for all employees, right? So like part of kind of like our, our idea of inclusiveness is including everybody in the conversation. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're in head office behind a desk or, or out, in a, out in a truck or up a tower or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, the, the idea is to make everybody's voice an equal part of that conversation. Um, and I think like in this peculiar situation that we're in at the moment, that's even more important. Yeah, agreed. Now, I mean, we're sort of ducking and diving a little bit, but um, I'm curious about the growth of Joyous. How, you know, how has that looked? What did you, you know, what did you plan out in advance? And, um, you know, how well have you, um, you know, stuck to those sort of estimates? Because, of course, um, you know, now's a time where things are pretty unknown. I mean, it, it, it sounds like now's a time where, a lot of businesses could be and, and are paying attention to what you're doing. Obviously, that's going to vary a lot for, for businesses. Some are going to be, you know, really, you know, flatlining or, or, or otherwise at this time. But um, how's that journey been since? When was it that, that you started with your first paying customer? Yeah. So, look, um, I think that, you know, we, we're, we're, um, you know, we're closely held and we don't to, you know, just disclose our revenue figures per se, but I can kind of give you some some indication. So we're, we've been in a very kind of logical stair-step plan. So I mentioned that, you know, in the first instance, um, at the beginning of 2018, we raised a, a small, you know, venture-led round of, of $1.2 million, and that was really to, to um, you know, start what we were doing, right? Um, and, you know, the outcomes of that round was to get, you know, four enterprise customers using the product the way that we described, um, you know, um, and, um, you know, also to, to, to build the technology and to, to build the core of an engineering team. And, um, you know, once we reached that step, um, you know, we would raise more capital, which, you know, we in fact did. So late last year, we raised um, uh, uh, another sort of $4 million round with, um, again, this time led by Airtree Ventures. Um, and, you know, and that was really on the back of that kind of kind of early success. You know, we've subsequently leaned into that and we've added more more enterprise customers. Um, and we're, you know, we've been careful that we add them at a, at a rate where we can um, you know, learn and, and work with them and, and turn them into, turn them into evangelists um, rather than just sort of, you know, 
just add them to the revenue line. They really have to become part of our sort of early team. Um, and so well, that's, been, um, that's on track. Um, yeah, we certainly have some, some very large clients around the world. We have a, you know, a, um, a uh, yeah, Fortune 10 company on the roster now, um, yeah, deployed to, 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 to yeah, a large proportion of their staff. So we are, we're on the trajectory we expect. Excellent. Oh, well, well done. That's uh, that's that's very encouraging to hear. And you know, I think everything I've heard so far certainly, uh, you know, suggests things are, are tracking for you very much in the right direction. Um, we're just about out of time, but I, you know, I'm just wondering what closing ad- advice um, that you know you could you can offer to um, you know to those leaders and and um, others that are uh, listening into the podcast in terms of uh, learnings that we can uh, that we can leave them with. Maybe um, start with you, Mike. Yeah, look, I mean, I guess my my kind of consistent place I've landed is um, is that um, you know f- for a while I was sort of thinking about how things would go back to normal, you know, like what the world would look like when it kind of returned to the way it was, and how that would work from a business perspective. And I, I think the you know the kind of opportunity in this actually is thinking about we're trying to understand what the world will look like and realise that actually would be very different. That there's actually not a return to exactly how things were. Um, and whether that's because there's more of a drive to, um, you know, to digital transformation and, and within the enterprise, and we've become more cognizant of, um, of, of the people around us, whether that's our workmates or whether that's our neighbours. You know, there's a lot of things that I think actually change in the environment. Um, and so rather than kind of picturing how your business will you know, survive and work and, you know, and how long it will take for stuff to return to normal, you know, it's, it's nice to try and orientate yourself if you can towards thinking about, hey, what, what will the opportunities look like and what will be a very new world? Great. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. And anything from you there, Philip? Yeah, I mean, just on the same thing, right? It's like um, really just sort of a case of um, understanding that, like, you know, th- th- there's there's plenty of things going on that are um, not the way that we would choose them to be, but there's also a set of silver linings um, and just sort of like focusing on on what the things are that, that this enables in terms of change, in terms of doing things differently. Um, I, I think that's absolutely valid. And then, you know, the the second thing at a much more human level, you know, just remembering that that everybody has something else going on in their lives at this time, right? It's just the the way you have to, to think about kind of everything you do at the moment is um, that, you know, there's a lot of a lot of complexity in people's lives. You you probably can't see most of it most of the time, um, and so just sort of like being kind, giving people a little bit extra space and understanding and um, and all that kind of thing. I think you know that's something we all should be doing. Yep, that's always good advice, and um, yeah, especially now. Uh, so, where do people look online to if they're if they're interested in finding out a little bit more about the business? Where is Joyous online? Yeah, joyoushq.com. Excellent. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Philip, and thank you, Mike. It's uh, It's been a real privilege to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the, the time out to share some of your story and your advice, and we'll, we'll look forward to following the Joyous journey. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly keen to uh, have a little bit of a look at your product and um, you know, possibly some of, our, uh, some of our listeners will too. So all the best. New Zealand's tech podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect.